0: Hi, this is john and today on theocast we are going to be reviewing the rise and fall of mars hill and this is not necessarily a podcast about criticizing mark or his ministry but it's more about looking at history and theology and examining the motives of the church and the mission of the church we try to give you some helpful ways to understand how it is we get here not only with this particular church, but with a lot of churches that have seemed to be fallen and uh, ministers who have been falling recently in history. We hope you enjoy the conversation. If you'd like to help support Theocast, you can do that by leaving us a review on iTunes and subscribing on your favorite podcast
1: app. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Plus, we have a Facebook group if you'd like to join the conversation there. Thanks for listening.
0: Welcome to Theocast, Encouraging Worry Pilgrims to Rest in Christ. Conversations about the Christian life from a reformed and pastoral perspective. Your hosts today are three pastors. Uh, we have Justin Perdue, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm John Moffitt, pastor of Grace Reformed Church in Spring Hill, Tennessee. And just below me, so below Nashville is where I'm at, and below me in Spring Hill is our guest today first time on the podcast not new to Theocast, but new on this podcast is Patrick Crandall. He is the pastor of Covenant Grace Church in or Covenant Grace Columbia as it's correctly known in Columbia, Tennessee. Patrick uh, we were able to send him down there with about 60 people back in the first week of June and you are three months officially in to church planting. And so Patrick, it's good to, to have you here brother tell us a little bit about you, the church. And well, but let me continue. Actually, there's a little bit more yeah. about Patrick and then we'll ask him some questions. But first of all, just so you guys know Patrick, uh, he is a graduate from Westminster. He graduated in 2014.
2: 2014
0: yeah. and uh, was already working at a church, the Fields Church, down in um, what's technically what city was that in? Carlsbad, California. Carlsbad, California. California. Was Metro there eight years on staff? Oh, 10. 10, ten years oh, yeah. as an associate there when the church was below 100 and uh, part of the Acts 29 Network and has moved out here last September, joined working with me, and we started men's and women's Bible studies And in June. We we didn't think it was going to happen in June with the pandemic, but in June, the Lord blessed us, and uh, you are now meeting in Columbia in a Christian school and uh, up over 100 people now, so... Anyways, that's uh, Patrick. And well, Patrick, um, tell us, brother, one of the things we're doing now is talking about what we're preaching. So what are you feeding your sheep right now?
2: Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for letting me join the conversation. Absolutely. John and I get to have conversations every week. That's right. He has to <laughs> deal with me. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's, <a> joy. <laughs> it's great to be able to do this. Uh, I've been blessed by Theocast over the years and I'm glad to be part of the, no, it's good to have the you conversations here. Thanks, bro. But yeah, so we've... Just hit our three-month mark since we started services out from from Grace, and we've been working our way through Ephesians. I, I couldn't really think of a much better book to no, start good. a church point with, with that rich theology of the gospel for the first half, and then the practical realities of how it plays out starting in chapter 4, which is what we just got to. So last week we did the first part of chapter 4, mm-hmm. talking about the priority of the unity of the body, which is really good, and kind of pushing back the gets the idea that Christian maturity is about strength and independence. Mm -hmm. It's actually about humility and love and gentleness and pursuing that unity, which is really good. And this week we move into the diversity of the church, right? The gifts that God gives for the building up of the body. Yeah. Mm. Ephesians four makes yet Ephesians. another appearance. Yes, it
0: does. Cast. I think we're I think we might be the, at hundred episodes. Yeah. Most Speaking of, this is episode one oh one. This is episode one hundred and one. Last week. Yeah, was and we, 100. we
1: really dropped the ball on you know, know. celebrating our one hundredth episode. <laughs> Woohoo, <100 laughs> Last week 100. we realized it after we recorded, we we're like, well, I mean, there that went and it came and went. And we didn't really say anything about it. But <laughs> here we go.
0: Yeah. The um yeah. uh the other thing is I forgot to mention that that Patrick is actually in studio with me, so this yeah. is my first ever in studio, in person uh, recording. John, so do you want to say see. anything
1: about just Patrick and his role, and like the fact that people may see him on the show from time to time?
0: Yeah. So two things. While we have him on here today, uh, Patrick um, is obviously um, been a pastor for over ten years now. Church planting, which is always fun to have church planters on the TheoCast podcast. Uh, but also he is going to uh, be a regular contributor here going forward. I means we'll get to see him um, every so often covering certain topics. We're going to have him back on. We're going to talk about evangelism, every church planner's favorite thing to do. And uh, maybe how we have uh, misinterpreted what that means in the New Testament and how maybe sometimes the fear that we have is not uh, scripture based. So we'll, that'll be in a few weeks, specifically why we brought Patrick on as this episode and the first one. we'll let Patrick, uh, Justin, you can introduce the subject, but yeah. uh, Patrick actually was a part of the X29 network uh, that Mark Driscoll started back when it was in just the early stages. I think you were in the first 20 churches, is that correct?
2: Yeah, really, first 20, 30. Mm-hmm.
0: So Patrick's kind of been uh, up close and personal, kind of watching the growth of the ministry and uh, the Fields Church that he's at. It's an excellent church. Uh, Pat, Justin, and I both have been there. We had our first Theocast live event there about two years ago, which is where we met uh, Patrick and started our conversation. And uh, not long after that, I got a phone call from him saying, hey, so what do you think about doing a church plant? (laughs) To, To which I said, sure, figure out how to get the money and we'll do it. And somehow I figured out how to get the money. So, Yeah. Apparently he had, he's a gangster in L.A. or something like that. So no, just kidding,
2: yes, something like that.
0: Hey, let's uh, let's jump into this. This is an important topic. So Justin, please explain why we would want to do something. It's pretty different for us. This is it not is, an unusual yeah. podcast. So talk talk to us.
1: We occasionally do things like this, but it's quite rare. To your point. So the title of the episode, I'm sure, has been a dead giveaway for people. Uh, we are not. Trying to just do something that's uh, in the realm of clickbait by talking about the rise and fall of Mars Hill today. Um, The podcast put out by Christianity Today has been listened to by a lot of people. Um, That's Mm -hmm. probably an understatement. And I know even in my own local church, there are a number of individuals who were very impacted by Mark Driscoll, by Mars Hill Church, even by Acts 29 and, and that whole movement in its early years. And people, have been affected by the fall of Mark Driscoll over the last half dozen, seven years or so. And so we thought it could be good for us, given that everybody is currently listening to this content. People who are very familiar with Mars Hill are listening to it. People like myself who were not familiar with Mars Hill and really had never listened to Driscoll preach. Um, I'm probably one of the, the anomalies who encountered Calvinism in the 2000s and wasn't infected by Driscoll very much. But it doesn't matter. like everybody's listening to this podcast and it's it's a good listen, it's well done. The content is it's engaging, it's troubling, it's heartbreaking. Uh, it's all of those things and people are having strong reactions to it. And the three of us are not an exception to that. like we're listening to it and we're thinking we have a lot of thoughts about it as pastors, as church planters. And what we thought we would do today, we don't want to oversell what we're doing. So, you guys, this is not a planned episode. We haven't mapped this thing out at all. Uh, we've talked about a few of our main thoughts with each other before we hit record this morning, but you're being invited in on a conversation amongst the three of us as we are reacting to and interacting with the content that we've listened to that is the rise and fall of Mars Hill, the podcast. And so, mm. I'm going to kick us off just very quickly with an observation about history and circumstance. That's not all that important. I mean, in terms of some of the things that we want to get to. So, we're just want to kind of acknowledge this and then move forward from here and get into more theological kind of takeaways. So, I, I think one thing that did strike me, guys, as I listened to the podcast, particularly episode two, I think outlines this really well. The pump had been primed for a movement like Mars Hill Church and for a man like Mark Driscoll to become what he and it became. Uh, it, you, you had the rise of the megachurch movement in the latter part of the 20th century then i think the podcast does a good job of outlining and you had a lot of people in the 90s who you know that's that's our generation guys i mean we came of age in the 90s disenchanted with cultural christianity disenchanted with kind of moralism and all this kind of stuff that we had grown up with in the church and we were all looking for something more substantial and then comes along mark driscoll who is he's bright he's smart he's insightful He's a big personality. He's an engaging speaker. He says the quiet part out loud. He's antagonistic against the things that many of us had wrestled with and kind of hated ourselves. And then, man, like he really taps into something. And it's not a mystery, historically, circumstantially, as to why Mars Hill exploded like it did and why he became such a larger-than-life persona and personality in the evangelical church. And so that, that definitely happened, and mm. there's a lot of fallout from that, uh, and there's a lot of other stuff that, that flows out of that that we're going to get to now. But mm. I just thought to kick us off with that observation. It's not surprising. It makes a ton of sense when you think about it historically and logically. Um, but now let's talk maybe more about some other significant thoughts that we have and ways that we want to interact with the content. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's um I had someone describe it as kind of like a car crash. It's hard to t- kind of hard to not look walk. away, man. It's hard to look away. Yeah. And uh I I remember I've heard I had several people tell me about it and I really wasn't interested in listening to it at the moment. Insane. And then I was driving one day and I was like, well, I don't have anything to listen to. I guess I'll see what this is about and I couldn't mm-hmm. stop listening. Well, yeah. it's well produced.
1: It is well done. Mm-hmm.
0: And then it it kind of um it got to that moment where i i i was taken back there was so much i didn't know Uh, Mm -hmm. i I, obviously aware of mark driscoll obviously aware of his ministry Uh, early on in my you know when i was in seminary there was this big um debate between him and, and and macarthur and um and i was there for all of that and the uh I appreciated a lot of the emphasis that you could see more kind of regaining some traction as it related to godliness being standing up for women, um, standing up for the truth of the gospel. Uh, And so some of the material that I engaged in, I, it's like not, it's not how I would probably say it. It's not how I would necessarily communicate it, but I appreciated that, that there was somebody who was, you know, had a platform and was communicating things that needed to be communicated, and I kind of just left it at that. And then as the years went on, I, you know, I, I remember reading his marriage book, and that's when I went, "Oh wow, this this is not yeah. good. this is." And um, you know, I at that point I had been really engaging covenantal theology and and reform theology, and so Mark really didn't fit that that yeah. that brand. He was definitely a part of kind of the. Yeah, the young restless, the neo-Calvinist,
1: the yeah. new Calvinism, or the young restless reform movement. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: which I wasn't really intrigued by that movement. I w- I was, it seemed like their they, their history of how how far back they read was was <laughs> not far back enough, and. uh, so when I when I first engaged the marriage book, that's when I became pretty concerned and not really a big fan of his anymore. And and anybody who would ask me about his ministry, I would say, yeah, I'm not, not, I'm a little concerned about how he decides to communicate things that seem to be very, very unbiblical. But that's the initial reaction when I when I when I started listening to the podcast, I had no idea, you know, how bad it really was. And I know there's a lot of people that have been hurt and and yeah. this is pretty shocking for a lot of people. You know, as that's my first initial thoughts. Uh, Patrick loved to to hear from you as well.
2: Yeah, so my journey with things. I grew up fairly calvinistic and I had this long process of kind of figuring out how to exactly to put those pieces together. that didn't really come all the way together until I went to Westminster and got some of the categories that they gave me like confessionalism and ordinary means of grace and things started to Covenant fit things together. And things like that. Yeah. Yeah. But until then it was kind of jumping from guy to guy hmm. within the Calvinistic camp, trying to make sense of these different things and finding different things that resonated and kind of glomming onto that for a while until something didn't work. And then finding the next guy. Uh, and so Driscoll was a big part of that for me. Um, in my college yeah. years and right after that, um loved all the stuff that everybody else loved. Right. I love that he was willing to say things that other people wouldn't say. Mm-hmm. It pushed back against kind of traditional legalism. Yeah. Right. And that, that called, you know, you can't drink, you can't dance, th- those kinds of things. It had an edge to it. It was piece, right. Yeah. And it also wasn't the soft and fluffy. Right. Eva stuff too. It was like, it seemed like a third way in a different way. Yeah. Um, for somebody who didn't have all those reformed confessional categories it looked like, Hey, this might be, this might be the thing I've been looking for and trying to put my finger on. And it really wasn't until I got to Westminster and started to get some of those categories where it all started to click. And some of the stuff I saw coming out of Marseille and Driscoll, it started to rub the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Like, Oh, this seems a couple degrees off. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to
1: go ahead. I'm going to give just a couple of my, you guys have sort of done this. I, I haven't yet. I, To talk just viscerally for a second, and then I want to maybe move into my first big, like, theological, like, pastoral concern in listening to this. So, I found that in listening to this content, I often was listening to it when I was like riding my bike or working out or something. And uh, I had so many, like, audible, out loud moments (laughs) listening to this where something would be said. I mean, a clip of Driscoll speaking or something. And I had an audible reaction with my earbuds in my ears. Like if somebody had walked by me or something, they'd be like, what is that guy listening to? <laughs>
0: um,
1: so it hit hard, right? And I, I'll just go ahead and say this. I think some of my most visceral responses were uh, in the episode, two two things, the episode about women. Uh, John, you mentioned mm. this. I, I think there's a great irony in this, this Driscoll thing where he early on was saying things that I think, at least on the, the surface, appear to be an um, attempt to protect women from weak men and from men that would harm them. But then the, the heartbreaking sort of ironic turn in this is that it seems to me that so much of what was created by Mark and what he was advocating and what ended up happening at Mars Hill ended up being a culture that was very abusive toward women. And actually ended up demeaning them unintentionally, uh, in very significant ways. And I was just greatly perplexed by so many things that I heard, in particular in that episode. Uh, and we're going to get to this maybe later. The binding of the conscience in the bedroom, like what you need to be doing there, was just oh, it was like hard to listen to. Uh, so that was one just visceral reaction for me. Um, the other was just shocking to me with how he spoke. So aggressively, antagonistically, like machismo style, about how look, you either you either get on the bus, you sit down, shut up, and play nice, or we'll throw you off and run you over. Um, it was just like, like, huh? I like, I rewinded. Did he really say that? Like, oh yeah. my gosh, bro. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are just some visceral reactions I had, and I mean, may God be gracious to us and and protect yeah. us and keep us from from error, right? So the the first big theological reaction though, guys, if I can kick us off with this, because I assume we may talk about this for a minute, is we all the time are advocating uh, confessional theology. And by that, Mm -hmm. we mean a whole host of things. But one of the things that means is that we are in a self-conscious way trying to be unoriginal and are aiming to simply tap into the faith once for all delivered to the saints as outlined by saints through history in historic confessions of faith. And there's a lot more to being confessional than that, but it is never less than that. And so I think as I'm listening to this, I am struck by the, what I would call the, the contrast between a confessional kind of stream of thought and then what I would call the big evangelicalism, the big Eva kind of ethos and philosophy, where we tend, even if we don't mean to do this on purpose, we tend to, in the evangelical church, build a theology and a movement you know, in a church on the personality and the convictions of one man. And it's like, it doesn't, right now we're talking about Mark Driscoll, but literally you could plug your guy, like insert your dude, whether it's Driscoll or whether it's Piper or whether it's, you know, whoever, James McDonald, I mean, pick the guy, Uh, Mm -hmm. Perry Noble, Mm -hmm. you know, any of them. It's not any particular issue or, or point of doctrine per se that troubles me. It's, the whole ethos of the thing where it really is a cult of personality. And this one leader effectively becomes our confession. That's right. It's like what he says goes um, Mm -hmm. as though he is a prophet, like literally is a conduit straight from God. And it's almost like there is just unchecked, unquestioned, thus saith the Lord authority Mm -hmm. in this leadership, you know, Person, this person of leadership and influence. It's it's frightening. Um that that was just an initial thought. And I think confessionalism and a confessional way of thinking about theology that's inherently corporate with people who are alive and with people who are long dead is one buffer and insulator from this really dangerous place.
0: That's right. So when episode two, I thought probably should have been what the entire Podcast should have been about. Uh, loved episode two. We'll let Christianity it, Today know that. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. I'm kidding. Okay.
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> they did. They did. Uh, reach out and asked if we wanted to, re- to advertise yeah. on their podcast. And maybe we and,
1: should have done that. I mean,
0: I don't, yeah, know. I don't know. Maybe yeah. we declined. But um, the the episode I thought was very helpful because it really exposed the problem. I didn't know it was about Mark, but Mark's not the issue. The issue no. is because. You know, uh, JD Coke and their podcast. Um, it's firm. about stand firm. It's an Anglican. I, I call it the Anglican version of Theocast. The uh, <laughs> he he said a statement in there that the church has really failed to catechize its people, yeah. and it's mm-hmm. true. And because we don't understand historical theology, we don't understand the debates that have come before. And the easiest way to say that is creeds and confessions are the clarity of heresy. Right? This is what's heretical. How do we know that? Because of the debates the church has been in before. And almost all of the episode two, you will see every single one of those men or those leaders, they aren't basing their teaching off of anything historical other than what their conclusion is to be. And almost all of them are dispensational. And so when you have guys who are coming at it from, I just believe what the Bible says, but really it's whatever I interpret the Bible to be, your confession at that moment goes as far back as the guy standing in the pulpit. In other words, yeah. You can't say that you can hold the preacher accountable to what he says because whatever he says goes. Uh, and when some people say, "Well, I don't believe in confessions; I just believe in the Bible," yet they're holding a Bible with a man's name on it with his commentary in it, which is a confession.
1: You're, you're uh, waving your study Bible in my face. It's like, where do you think right. those came from? Yeah,
0: that's right. The the danger of when when the 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 guy in the pulpit, you know, you can call him the senior pastor, the I mean, they have all mm. kinds of names now: visionary pastor, visionary caster, whatever you want to call them. Mm. He and some of these guys are—they're good teachers, they're faithful teachers, sure. but they—they're they usually very
1: good leaders. They're usually very mm-hmm. engaging personalities. Yeah,
0: right. I remember listening to James McDonald over 20 years ago when he was teaching in the radio, and I was very—I was benefited greatly by a lot of his teaching because it was verse by verse. It was helpful. Uh, but what what when you have guys who there's no structure. There's nothing there that they can be held accountable to for their own sake and their own sanity. You do have the craziness that things like James McDonald and man, I even listened to a podcast that was talking about, um, the stuff that was happening at Liberty university and, and all of that nonsense that goes on over there. Uh, Christianity, it seems to repeat itself over and over again when it doesn't pay attention to history. One of the things I do with my children is I sit down uh, weekly and we work through the confession because I want them to hear, don't believe this because dad told you to believe this. You need yeah. to understand that if you believe in Christ and you've been baptized into his church, here's your history. This is how we got here. and this is These documents have been handed to us to make sure that we don't fall into the same traps that Mark Driscoll and James McDonald aren't the first leaders to lead people down a path that is to destruction. Now, and and they right. and technically they're not heretical teachers. They weren't teaching another gospel, but they definitely got off track on what was the priority of the local church. Which is majority. If I want to say anything about the rise and fall of Marcel, the whole podcast, and we'll get into this. But when when you lose the focus and mission of the church, which I think the confessions help you do that, man, that church can go. It can go in that's right. It can go into any any gutter that's on either side of the road. And uh, I think we saw that with both James and, I mean, lots of churches, unfortunately. If you're new to Theocast,
1: we have a free ebook available for you called Faith Versus Faithfulness, A Primer on Rest. And if you've struggled with legalism, a lack of assurance, or simply want to know what it means to live by faith alone, we wrote this little book to provide a simple answer from a reformed confessional perspective. You can get your free copy at theocast.org/slash
2: primer. Yeah, I echo everything you guys said. And I think what happens in most evangelical churches is you have a doctrinal statement, right? But mm-hmm. it's like a one-page doc. It's basically a couple of sentences tacked onto the apostles' Creed. Or it's something the lead pastors yeah, put together. Right. Yeah. So yeah. it's it has almost no history and it's right. incredibly minimalistic. Right. But the bottom line is no church is doctrinally minimalistic. You have more beliefs and more things that are set than that. And if they are not coming from a confession or something like that, those blanks are being filled in by the guy who's teaching, right? And with whatever he wants, because there's nothing kind of constraining him and kind of fencing him in to to a box. And I mean that in the best way. It's one of the things I love about being confessionals, I talk to my new church, is how the confession protects them, right? Because this is Mm -hmm. what we have agreed on, this robust view of doctrine and theology that they can hold me to without being theologians, without having gone Mm -hmm. to seminary. I can't pull that trump card and just say, well, you guys just don't know as much as me do. They can say, hey, this this is what we affirm as a church, and you've gone outside those bounds. So it helpfully boxes me in and constrains me to a definition of the faith that has come down through time, that has answered heresies, that has Mm -hmm. been tested by many people, many churches, versus what I got into a room with a couple guys and threw together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A couple of thoughts on what you guys are saying. Like one, I agree, John, with what you were talking about, how having a confession of faith or being confessional actually protects the mission of the church and keeps it keeps it pure. And I mean the mission of the church at its most basic level, as we agree on all the time, is the proclamation of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments for the salvation of God's people. And so ultimately it is it's Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, like I desire to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. I mean that is the mission. Uh, at the most basic level of the local churches is this is about Christ. this is about him and the people who need him. And then we can, with the best of intentions, right? We can turn and just slightly redirect that trajectory, the trajectory of that mission, and turn it into this kind of movement where we at such and such a church, or we under this guy's influential leadership, we have really tapped into the secret. Like we've got the special sauce that nobody else has, and we've got the corner on the market as far as how to do church, and we're going over here. And we're gonna win the city. You know, like it's a little that bit becomes, Gnostic in that way. Yeah. It becomes the mission. Like as I was listening to the podcast over and over again, it becomes this very kind of wartime, and I understand that the scriptures use this imagery, right? But it's yeah, very soldiers, much this like yeah. wartime paradigm of we are going into battle um perpetually, it seems, to win the city. And the way that we're gonna do that. It's like yeah, we're going to preach Christ. That's almost assumed like we want people to come to Jesus. That's that's stated sometimes, assumed at others. But we're going to do that by, you know, getting people married and by people having a bunch of babies and by people buying houses and we're going to you know, we're going to get jobs in the city and we're going to take over the city for Jesus. Becomes the the mission rather than I think something like you want to sort of back that up and always keep the heralding of Christ and the loving of one another in the forefront of your mind. As a a leader in the church. And I mean, while we're talking about that mission thing, uh, another reaction I had that's very much related to this as I was listening is I I think that there was a decent amount of over spiritualization going on as I listened to Mark speak, as I listened to him preach and teach. uh, Where literally, what I mean by that is we are turning everything into a spiritual matter. We are taking things that are not inherently spiritual or even inherently moral and turning them into spiritual and moral issues. And you could hear this a lot in the way that he would frame everything in terms of yeah it's it's war like we're in we're in the midst of war guys um, everything is about your fidelity to Christ including like I alluded to earlier like what you're doing in the bedroom and and whether or not women should work outside the home or fill in the blank like it's all about the mission and we've got to be on mission. And I mean, he even uses this language about firing pastors and whatever. It's like they got off mission, so we threw them off the bus. You know, and so like everything becomes mm-hmm. about the mission, like literally everything. Mm. And and I'm like, man, there's no room whatsoever for just ordinary faithfulness, it doesn't seem like this is just another way to repackage that kind of radical stuff uh, that apparently we're all called to in Christ, and simply to trust Jesus, love the brethren, love my family be an honorable employee where I work. I, apparently I'm still not, I might do all that and not be on mission. You right.
2: Know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think those things are really tied together in this sense. Uh, I was in the military before I went into ministry. Mm. And if there was one thing I took away from my military training, it was pure training in pragmatism. Mm. Because when you are in the military, your job is to win yeah. and there is no box you yeah. do whatever it takes to win like yeah. and that, that is shapes the goal the everything good. it is the goal yeah. there is nothing else you that's sacrifice right. everything right. to that goal right yeah. and that's where some of that over spiritualization that happened with mark happened everything now has to serve the mission so you will make things imperatives mm-hmm. you'll bind people's consciences to things that the lord doesn't in because it serves that mission because it serves right and so yeah. when everything is about the mission it really opens the door to a pragmatism where we end up with a the ends justify the means church. And if you read the New Mm -hmm. Testament, and we have the exact opposite, the ends are what God does through the Holy Spirit, and he decides what he wants to do. What we're told about over and over again is what we are to be doing and how we are to be doing it. He produces the increase, whatever he wants to, right? But there's a whole lot more about the manner in which we do things and mm. and the stuff we're supposed to be doing along the way versus what we are supposed to produce and mm. show at the end.
0: Uh, yeah. You hear multiple times in the podcast about the results, right? Uh, and the results really justified the means, no matter what was yeah. going on and no matter how out of control Mark may have been. It's like, look at, look at what we're doing. And you could hear... Oh, look at the, the fruit. That's right. You could hear the staff and the other pastors when they're being interviewed saying, it was really hard for us. I mean, it brought tears these days where we saw all these baptisms and see all these people coming to Christ. And you even hear these stories about people who wanted nothing to do with the church and left the church and now yeah. back in the church and love the church. And th- those those stories are hard because I think they're, those people are genuine believers, yeah. and what what can be so complicated about Christianity is that people say well you you're just being critical because you know your church is small and their church is big and you know the, well, the what threw me for a loop and, and I I remember calling Justin and we talked about this I said man when when someone asked Mark who who like who's Who's mentoring you? Who's kind of like watching you? They mentioned Piper and his response was, well, and and I'm assuming this is a legit conversation. And his response was, well, you know, Piper's church is smaller than me. How can he mentor me? Mm -hmm. And it became not about the nature and the character of a man and as a shepherd and as a guy who needs to be watched over unless he too stumble. It became about the game of a size and how big it became. And that is, it's so... Dangerous. We all want to see multiple people rest in Christ, but ultimately, that is God's responsibility. We, we right. already all faithful. want to see fruit. We all that's we right. want to see fruit. Sure, that's yeah. right. And it's you know we can be we can become discouraged about oh well you know I only had thirty people in my church or three hundred or whatever the number of it can be, but this is this is the I think the result of the modern evangelical church that. A successful pastor, I think there's, you know, Patrick, you can speak into this, but in Acts twenty nine, they kind of talk about like if you're not this size by this year, your church is a failure. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but there's nothing in the New Testament that tells me where a successful church needs to be at at a successful time frame in a successful moment. And when mm-hmm. I see when I see the command of a, of a pastor, he is to feed his sheep, he is to tend his sheep and he is to love and care for them, and God gives the increase. I mean, Paul literally says some plant and some water, and God brings the increase. So if a pastor is faithfully shepherding his flock by feeding them and tending them, then that he is a successful man. Yeah. It's not his responsibility to determine what the size of a church is going to be. He cares for people, he evangelizes, and he lets God bring the increase. But mm-hmm. the problem is, in a, in a results-driven world, that just doesn't work. You know, I—, I I hate when I'm around other pastors when you get that question of like, well, how big is your church or how it's like, why does that matter to you? You know, what's oh, the significance yeah. of that? Who cares? Yeah. You know, it's how, and that's who a, cares how many churches you've planted. Yeah. To God be the glory. Dilemma. Yeah, it's an age old dilemma though, John. I
1: mean, because there's a quote from a uh, from John Brown. I mean, he's a like I mean, this is back several hundred years ago, Puritan era, where he writes to a younger minister and says, I know that you will be tempted to be ashamed at the size of your congregation. Because you know it's it's so small, yeah. but please, but please know that when you stand before it on the last day, you will know that you've had enough in terms of <laughs> enough people to care for. Like right. so, don't be wigging out, you know, about the size of your church and the size of your assembly. And we all are prone to do that. My mm. goodness, I mean, it, we're we're three pastors, three church planners here, and it is so easy for your identity to be wrapped up in how many people show up on Sunday. I mean, that ju- right. that just speaks to the frailty yep. that's in all of us right? Like, that's not to our credit, that's to our shame, you know, that we mm-hmm. think in those ways. Um, I, I, my, I, my thought, one, one thing too, guys, as I'm listening to you talk and as I reflect back on my experience listening to the podcast, I was struck over and over again by, like you were talking about John the Baptisms and all the people coming to faith and people who hated the church are now in the church and love the church. It's like, look, it's clear that the Lord did some really great stuff through this. Like, I don't think that can be debated. Because the tendency mm-hmm. amongst evangelicals, too, is like when there's a failure and when this kind of expose piece comes out, it's like, well, we need to literally burn the whole thing down and act like it never happened. Like We need to so right. distance ourselves from Driscoll and Mars Hill that anything that ever took place there couldn't have been from God. And it's like, you can't do that in a fallen world because, if anything, the scriptures mm-hmm. bear witness to the fact that he's always used broken vessels right. to advance his purposes. And that's, that's true. It's been true for millennia. And so... I think it's better for us to say, you know what? The Lord obviously was a part of this. He in spite of the sin and failure here did some phenomenal things, brought people to Christ. I mean, stoked a, f- a fire in people's hearts in terms of love for the church and love for their brothers and sisters and that's the Lord's doing. Uh it ought to humble us yeah. all. I mean that he accomplishes this stuff yeah. in like through our sin and failure, mm-hmm. not in spite of it or apart from it. No. You know, it's just
0: Right part yeah. of the reformed tradition which all three of us here espouse and hold to and believe that it is biblical is a plurality of leaders or as we say a plurality mm-hmm. of elders. See I grew up in the Baptist world fundamentalist Baptist world, where it Man of God, the, bro. Mm-hmm, CEO the Man CEO pastor is the, basically you never you don't question him and amen. his word <laughs> amen. amen and his uh and I, I saw the the impact I had on my own dad. He was a pastor, the pressure that put under to him. I see how it can affect other churches. And even though Mark had elders, it was, unfortunately, you can see the structure where those guys weren't keeping him accountable. And it's in many ways they couldn't because of the way in which the structure that was set up there. And it, it is scary when one man has that much influence and not much power. And, and we're and,
1: even changing the bylaws to give him more. Exactly,
0: exactly. And I don't want to make this just a you know a bash of, of Mark Driscoll. I, I think it's a broader problem where mm-hmm. we become more concerned about running the church like a business, where you have a business model and you have right. bo- you have a CEO like and it's a boards. Yeah, and and it's more about the decision making process where pastors become businessmen instead of shepherds, and How they're do we more grow about movement. Yeah. That's right. They're about leading this movement which you can hear going back to your point justin that everything is about the mission everything is about what are we trying to accomplish which i agree the church should be on mission but the mission that was handed to them by god and it's not this transformation of city and it's not this i mean you you get lost it's to preach christ (laughs) that's right when you look at i mean ephesians 4 i know we mentioned it but when paul seems to give us the clearest mission of what the church is it's like when we all function as we should we are building each other up into the maturity of the person of Christ. And somehow we have lost it. Um, two weeks ago, I, I preached a sermon on the shattered church or shattered by the church. And because the church has lost one, its history and two, its mission, it it runs people over. I mean, Mark is just an example of mm. hundreds of churches that just run people over. Because if you show up and you have problems and you and you are you are weak and feeble. And this church is, is, is it's like moving somewhere and you're going to drag them down. They just don't have time for that. They don't yeah. have time for counseling. They don't have time to carry your burden. They don't have time to sit and weep with you. I mean, the thing that Paul says is weep with those who weep. The church should literally, if, if if someone is hurting, then we hurt with them. But in today's movement, you can't do that because it's more about growth and movement and power and more campuses and more, 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 more. Yeah. And, and I'm looking at going, look at how many people you have left in the wake yeah. of your mission. How can yeah. that be the mission of the church?
1: Yeah, I, really quick before I toss it to Patrick. I think it's clear that in the early years, a lot of that was happening like based on my listening of, mm-hmm. to the podcast. But then as it evolved and the thing got bigger, it became all about the growth of the platform. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, one of the more humbling, sobering things that we all need to be mindful of, uh, for sure. Like as we're thinking about, about leading leading churches and, uh, and loving people. Um, yeah, that just struck me, John, as you were talking about it. I, I agree with yeah. you. And it seems like that was happening, but that was
2: lost somewhat over the course of years. Yeah. Yeah, just a couple of thoughts to piggyback on what you guys have been saying. One of the things I've heard over the years is um, healthy things grow, mm-hmm. right? And that is true in part, but it depends on how you define growth, first of all, right? Are we defining that growth by the way that scripture does, right? Versus our our self-defined mission, right? And the way that we've kind of changed the mission and purpose of the church, the other thing is unhealthy things grow too, right? The wheat and the tares grow up mm-hmm. together. So to to start it's using yeah. the appearance of fruit as justification for doing anything, essentially, it, it really is a manifestation of a theology of glory,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right? That That the advance yep. of the church looks like this. It's this magisterial glorious thing where we're kind of taking things over instead of a theology of the cross where we are simply proclaiming Christ, caring for each other in a broken world where we're going to have trouble, where the things of the world will flourish at times and um, our glory is to come, not here. And so I think that is how we define some of those things we talk about is so important Mm -hmm. in making sure we're constrained by scripture.
1: Yeah. I I think a. couple final observations from me and then you guys maybe make yours too mm-hmm. one i was astonished to listen to uh almost like to hear driscoll speak with pride about the number of bodies that laid behind the mars hill bus like and he said by god's grace it'll be a mountain when we're done
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I mean, just bruh. to interject on that, there's another podcast that interviews about his new church and they literally have a bus parked in the parking lot for that mm-hmm. visual purpose. Yeah.
1: So I'm, <laughs> I'm like, man, um, I understand in some, to some extent that at times there will be people that are in the church that are actually not of us. And that's why church discipline exists and those kinds mm-hmm. of things. I, I, we all agree with that. Uh, But the fact that you are wearing this like a badge of honor, that you're not excommunicating people for unrepentant, hard-hearted, obstinate sin. That's not what this is. That's not what he means. He's like, if you're not on the mission, if you're not buying into this particular vision and what we're doing, and you're not abiding by all of these various things that we do here, then we're going to throw Mm -hmm. you off and run you over. And and it's going to be because we're doing God's work that Mm -hmm. we're doing that. You know, in the name of God, we're gonna throw you off and run you over. And this is obviously a good thing. I mean, look at Paul. He had to get rid of people at points. It's like, homie, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think that's faithful exegesis. You know, I don't think that's what the Lord is telling us to do. Um, if anything, if we're gonna to strive to do anything as pastors, ought we not strive to keep people in the fold, for goodness sakes. That's right. You know, and and preach Christ to them and love them in such a way that we would see them restored rather than taking pride in the fact that we threw them off. Uh so that was what last thing it's very much related to some of the stuff we're talking about John you were mentioning counseling and weeping people and and all this other stuff I I was shocked at how much and, the, and it all serves the mission so it makes entire sense because we're all about this particular mission this particular brand here's how Mars Hill does church there was so much like gross binding of the conscience that goes so far beyond scripture it, it was wild and I think example after example of what I would call um, very significant pastoral overreach where it's a mm. really an abuse of the pastoral office and an abuse of the pastoral authority that the Lord has given us it's mm. like look we deal as pastors in the areas of the preaching of Christ and the administration of the sacraments and then we deal in the areas of sin and repentance mm. period yeah mm. like yep. for us to then go and tell people Uh, Like, oh, well, you know, you're going to do this, you know, intense premarital thing. Like, you want to get married? Okay, well, you're going to meet with a mentor couple, and this and this and this may happen. And you're going to have to tell them everything about all of your failures sexually and the whole, you know, your whole life. And then they're going to assess it, and they may very well tell you you can't get married, you know. And it's like, I mean, that's one example. Or here's how you need to conduct yourself as husband and wife. Or, you know, here's what it is. Like women, you know, there are certain roles that they need to. Occupy, and if they're working outside the home, clearly you're in sin. The males failed because he's not leading the right way. I mean, it's just over and over and over and over again. Like all these things that the Bible doesn't speak to definitively at all, yet we're telling people that they must do it this way. That is a man. That's a way to abuse people uh, and really throw a bunch of clutter on on top of the gospel.
2: And I think that occurred sadly,
1: uh, from what I
2: listened to anyway. Yeah, and that, that was a huge thing the reformers pushed back on, because that was what was because going Rome on. With Rome was doing that. Rome, the view of the church's right. authority was—it right. was magisterial authority, like a king. Yeah. It was authoritative because they said it. Yeah, An ecclesiastical right? and ecclesiastical courts were a thing. Right to your point, inquisitions right. and the yeah. whole that whole deal, right? Yeah. And then on the other side, you had the Anabaptists. Right, who are essentially spiritual anarchists? Nobody has any authority, right? It's just me in my woods with my Bible, whatever I feel like it says. Yeah. Yeah. The reformers push back on both, right? There is authority within the church, but it is ministerial authority. The church has authority as it faithfully ministers the word of God, and that authority stops where the word stops. We can't bind anybody's conscience beyond where the word of God does. And so I'll even do this when I'm counseling people. I make a very clear distinction when I'm telling them, Hey, thus saith the Lord, Mm -hmm. you 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 have to do this. Mm -hmm. This isn't an optional thing, versus where I'm giving them wisdom. I'm saying, like, hey, this has been helpful for people. I've seen this be get but I can't bind your conscience to do that because yeah. I don't have that authority. We're
0: not financial advisors. We're That's not psychologists. Right. Bro, people that <laughs> right. come to me, people that come to
1: me seeking wisdom probably grow weary of, they probably know that the thing I'm going to say for the first two to three minutes, I'm going to be super clear about, you know, what this is and, uh, where my authority does and does not lie in this situation, it's like, hey, if this is what you want for me to just talk to you as your brother in Christ and your friend about this particular thing, I'm happy to do that. There mm-hmm. may very well be other people in this church that are way more, you know, able to speak to this yep. than me, but I'm happy to talk to you about it, happy to process it with you. Uh, but I have no unique authority or wisdom to offer here, <laughs> you know. And I mean, I'm sure people are like, okay, he's saying that again, you know. Yeah. But I think to your point, Patrick, John, I know you do the same thing. We do need to help our people know. Where our authority lies and where it doesn't, right. uh, because we are not just this—you know—like unilaterally just kind of making decisions for everyone in our congregations about every yeah. single thing. Right? Yeah. You know, yeah. God help us. Good, you know?
0: good friend of mine, uh, Mike Abendroth, on a podcast recently said, "Unfortunately, congregants look at their pastors if they are competent in all things." Yeah. And we are not competent in all things. We are called to be competent in few things. And that's to be able to, uh, you're right, to uh, properly administrate the word and shepherd the flock. That's what we're supposed to be competent in if we're going to be put in that position. And this is why James says not many of you should be teachers because you're probably not competent to do it. Uh, So it's hard when, you know, we do get advice for a lot of things. And even when it comes down to certain areas of counseling, i tell people, I'm like, I'm not competent to handle that. That is outside the realm of a theological issue. That is, that is a domestic issue and you're going to have to. Or that's a
1: civil issue or whatever it is. Yeah.
0: Right. Right. My, uh, my last shot here, I know we're going over time. You're good. Is uh, for someone who's been rocked by this, my encouragement to you is, um, I too have experienced this. I have lost mentors. Um, I, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, I grew up at a pastor's home and in the fundamentalist Baptist world, there's been a lot of guys in the news over the years I've seen this. I've seen this happen. Unfortunately, more often than not, and the news just loves this. They love yeah. to see the fall. And uh, I, being one that has experienced um, people that I love go through this, it is a good and helpful check to remind yourself of your motivation. So, if you're a pastor and you're listening to this, my encouragement to you is: these are these are healthy moments from the Lord for you to, to examine your own motivations. Yeah. And ask yourself, you know, what, who, how am I being held accountable? It, can someone call me on the carpet? Who, who can confront me if I'm being arrogant and prideful and out of control? And uh, I tell my congregants in all of our new members class, the reason why I have you read the confession and agree to it before you join our congregation is that you're going to hold me accountable to this confession and I'm going to hold you accountable to it and it protects the both of us. Yeah. And um, this is a historical document that's been handed down by the churches and affirmed by thousands and hundreds of people. And I think we should pay attention to those kind of things. Now, listen, not every confessional church uh, holds the priority of a plurality of elders no. in a confession. You can walk no. into a confessional church and that church will absolutely fail you if they don't see the history and the importance of what is there. Which, yes. Justin, means we need to do a church uh, podcast soon, which we have scheduled on confessionalism which sure. maybe we'll bring patrick in for that one as well
1: yeah maybe I, one last shot for me too i'm sorry I, i'm just no I more you're done
0: you hit your quota
1: i don't i don't <laughs> want to leave this regular episode without saying this like we ought not listen to a podcast like this just assuming that we have it all together, and that we have the moral yes. high ground, and that we have the answer to every problem that ails us—that is not a healthy posture. We ought to listen to it with mm-hmm. humility. With we ought to grieve when we hear of yes. things like this. We should weep with those who have been hurt by this. Um, and yeah, we should we should pray, frankly, for the grace of God that He would keep mm-hmm. us from error and from wounding other people. Uh, So we don't want to come in with that kind of condescending mindset of, well, if they would have just understood this, 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 and this, then clearly this wouldn't have happened. And we've got it all figured out. So this isn't going to happen here. We need to, Galatians 6, 1, right? The second part of that verse is that we ought to keep watch on ourselves, you know, lest Mm. we too fall. Yeah. I mean,
0: to that point, Justin, yeah. I, I sent this to all of my leaders and elders in training and said, you guys need to listen yeah. to this because totally. we need to make sure that we don't fall into the same traps. Amen, you bro. Know? As, uh-huh. as, as I'll say this before we go, but as Paul says, uh, these Old Testament failures were given as an example that you too may not fall in them. I think it's helpful to see the failures of others and say, That's right. hey, I think we need to pay attention to that. The, the frailty of the flesh is real and That's we right. really don't, can't And don't, don't harden traps. your heart. Yeah, that's
2: right. Yeah, and just to remember, just our the tendencies of our flesh Amen. of wanting to look at the other people's failures to feel mm. validated, about vindicated, yeah. self justified, and that is so prevalent in our culture, mm-hmm. in the it's church, wicked. outside of the church. This is yeah. this is what social media exists for. It seems like at times is to look at everybody else's f- failures and fallings, so that we can say, "Well, it's not me."
0: Yep. Well, we're going to move over to the Simper Reformanda podcast. Uh, we're going to be talking over there, um, m- m- multiple other things, but how does the church respond to things like this? Do we have responsibilities to go after something like a Mark Driscoll or a James McDonald? Uh, how do, as shepherds, do we uh, shepherd our own congregation? What if you find yourself in a church where it is more of a dictatorship? Uh, how do you handle that as well? These are what we call a little bit more intimate and what we call team conversations. Semper from Reformanda are those who have partnered with us to spread the message of confessional theology, reform theology, not only to strengthen our own hearts and our own communities, but to really build up the local church. This is really what the design of this ministry is for. If you'd like to learn more about it, you can go to theocast.org and that's where we uh, have our app, our podcast and local and online groups to meet. For the sake of edification, that we might build each other up and the church. So, if you'd like to participate in that, we'd love to have you there. Patrick, welcome. It's good to have you here. We look forward to having you back. Yeah. enjoy As well you as way. Jimmy. Jimmy, Jimmy Thanks, should be guys. back here in a few weeks um, as he gets his schedule up and going. These two are our new, um, what, what do we call it? Regular contributors. Thank Regular you. Contributors, yeah. All right. We'll see you guys next week.